Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It's kind of the springboard verse that we've been going through. You'll remember that we've been... What got us here where we are, I trust through the Lord's leadership, has been uh, this this look at the fact that Nehemiah and uh, going back and rebuilding the... Our, you know, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem was preceded by rebuilding uh, or building the uh, destroyed tabernacle temple and looked at that and how often we can be tempted in the Christian experience and the Christian life to do the opposite to go to wall building and then um, having personal time and worship and devotion to Jesus as an afterthought and we need to we need to get back on in God's order and, and align ourselves with his, with his priorities. And we that launched us into a look at the bronze labor and what the bronze labor represents in the tabernacle. And we've been looking at going from a courtyard believer we've um, and, and going into uh, to a, a place of communion with the Lord and intimate fellowship with Him. And uh, so we can either wander around the Christian life in the courtyard or go back and forth or we can uh, look at the bronze labor carefully and see what all this business is about communion and how we can get into communion with the Lord. Um, and we've gone over and looked at that. We've looked at the characteristics of a person in communion and we've looked at also uh, the criteria for moving into communion at the bronze labor. All hinges on what goes on at the bronze labor. We're already saved. Time we go by the bronze uh, brazen altar, we're, that's salvation. That's a picture of the cross. But at that bronze labor right there, and we've looked at it at length. We know, you know. We've looked at it that it's, it's the Word of God. It's the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. And that water and that labor where we stand in need of washing and the priest would wash his hands and he would wash his feet and we went to that, that length about what that means for us. What is the symbolism and what does it mean to us in a practical sense? And we've gone through that the last couple of weeks. But what we've looked at is the, the, the deal breaker and what makes the, the total difference is seen in the disciples in Acts 4, 13 when it was said of them, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. That's the difference. That's the difference that makes the difference. And it is the difference that makes the difference. And even carnal men and women had observed there's something really different about these guys and, and, and the difference was not anything that they had seen about themselves but the difference of who they were in communion with, who they'd been around. And uh, that is true of us. As a matter of fact, um, we had the same privilege because now... Uh, the place where Christ resides on this earth is in the life of the believer. Now, Colossians one twenty seven says, "Christ in you, the hope of glory." So we moved on in, and we've gone beyond. We've gone into the into the place of communion, preceded by the bronze labor. We went, we've gone through all that, and then we come to the place of communion. Hallelujah! We've washed our hands. We've washed our feet. We've first seen our hand washing and our feet washing in light of the fact that that's a symbol of the fact that Jesus, His blood that redeemed us and the feet that God became a man, He came down to redeem us. And then, what, what, what holds for us? What is held for us in the place 
of communion. And I want to make a several observations here from the scriptures about that place of communion. And then talk about what we expect when we get there. But I want to precede that by a passage of scripture that I just want you to take a look at for just a moment. This just came up to me this morning. and planned on this. But in Isaiah chapter 30, look at Isaiah chapter 30, and you know that Isaiah was prophesying to a an apostate people, a nation that was gone astray and lost their way. And in Isaiah chapter 30, <clears throat> something said here that just certainly applies, the Bible applies to every time. And it says in verse 8, Now go write it before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll, that this may be for a time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious, chill people. Lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things and prophesy deceits. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, and cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. You could take the Holy One of Israel and insert the name Jesus there. Cease from Him being before us. We don't want to hear from Him. And we know that when we're told what we want to hear, it's almost always at the expense of what we need to hear. And the Lord has a word for us here in, in this issue of communion. And let's, let's abandon our thoughts as best we can. Let's humble ourselves before Him and see what He has to say. But what can we expect in that place? Well, one thing... In the uh, place of communion, we can expect transcendent joy. <laughs> transcendent joy. Why is it transcendent? Because it has nothing to do with our circumstances. It is a joy and a grace that's imparted by the Lord that does not hang, does not have, not as contingent, and is not dependent upon in any way, shape, or form our circumstances. As a matter of fact, it's best known, best displayed, and best testified to when it's in spite of them. That there's a joy that happens in the life of a believer in communion. Regardless of what's going on on the outside, there's an inner grace operating on the inside. Nehemiah, verse, chapter 8, verse 10, it was said of Nehemiah and his crew. Let's go look at that. And that's certainly appropriate because Nehemiah is the book from which we really started, God started all this. But if you go look at Nehemiah, and you'll remember this verse. You've heard it before. You've heard it quoted. I, I will suspect many times. Um, it's chapter 8, verse 10. It's a time when they got the law out. And Ezra read the law. He read the Bible to them. Basically. As a matter of fact, parenthetically, that's the reason we often, when we read a passage of Scripture in our worship time, we stand in respect because that's what they did here. Verse 5, it says they stood when he opened the book. And they listened. And it says there, they said to them, um, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those from whom nothing is prepared. For this is the day, this day is holy to our Lord. And do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. But look at the context. Where did that joy come from? Look at it. In verse 11 so the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions. And here's their rejoicing. They rejoiced greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. <laughs> their joy was, is they heard the word of God and they understood it. They heard the word of God and they received it. They had open hearts. They were ready. They weren't, weren't trying to uh, modify it or contort it or recommend things to God to speak to them or help God out. They just heard the pure word of God. They received it and they understood what they heard and that was the basis of their rejoicing. Hallelujah. It should be no less for us. Is that nothing but the illumination that comes and the understanding that comes for those who dare to stay at the bronze labor long enough to get it? Those who dare to stay at the bronze labor long enough to be illuminated by the Word of God and to understand what we hear and apply it. Hallelujah to His name. So it's transcendent joy that we can expect in communion. Joy, not because of, but yes, dear ones, joy in spite of. Look at John 15 11. Get ready. We're going to jump all over the Bible again this morning, if you will. John 15 11. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. It's been said before that happiness depends on happenings, but joy is an outward expression of an inward delight that has nothing to do with happenings. And boy, everybody wants to be happy. One of the most famous songs on radio right now is happy. Happy, happy, happy. And I was sitting there thinking, boy, that's a puny happiness because it has everything to do with the circumstances that are going on around you and has nothing to do with the grace that's been purchased and bought and understood and received in you. Jesus, I spoke this that you may have joy. These are my last words. This is my last will and testament before I go to the cross. I'm about to pray for you this beautiful prayer so that you'll have a transcendent joy. You can walk not in a joy that's like mine, but you can walk in my joy. And then love. Love. Love is experienced there. Love is understood there. In that place of communion. Look at John 15, 9. As the Father loved me, I, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. doesn't mean that if you keep my commandments, you will receive my love. It means that if you keep my commandments in communion, you will abide in it. I love you no matter what. But look what kind of love it is. And We, we went through a ser- series back when we used to meet in the gym. On the love of Christ, the love of God, and on the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That just eternally blessed me. Eternally. And we looked at this verse in our sojourn there, and look at that. Look at the character and nature of that love. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Amazing. The love relationship that exists between God and His Son is the same love relationship that exists between the Son and and his children. Did you hear that? The love relationship that exists between the father and the son is identical to the love relationship between the son and we his bride. How long has that relationship been? How long did the father and the son love each other? Forever. In eternity past. It means that God's love for you and I did not start 
on the day we were born are born again. But the, God's love for us has always been and always will be. I don't understand that, but hallelujah, I believe it because the Bible teaches it. And in the courtyard, we abide there. It's a sustaining grace that we abide in. And there's such security in that. There's such confidence in that that we're so full of it that we begin to give it to other people. Remember, the difference between a courtyard believer is he has phileo for the Lord. And the difference between that believer and a believer in communion is he has agape for the Lord. If you don't have at least phileo before the Lord, you're not saved. But phileo is a lower tier love than agape is. And agape is experienced by and shared with those who are in communion because they're so rest and so secure in their relationship with Jesus that they can love others whether they ever get it back or not. That's the essence of agape. You remember, eros, the love that takes. Phileo, the love that gives and takes. Agape, the love that gives. Period. It's the love of God. It's the love of God. It's not that we express something like the love of God to others. It's that we receive the love of God, fills us to overflowing, and it spills out on other people around us. That's what communion is. And there's peace there too. You know, in the courtyard, you have peace with God. Because if you're in the courtyard, it means you're saved. But in communion, you have something different. You have the peace of God. There's a difference. There's a difference between, there are plenty of people who have peace with God, but don't have the peace of God. But there's no one who has the peace of God who doesn't also have the peace with God. You can have peace with God and not have the peace of God. But you cannot have the peace of God and not have peace with God. Look at John 16, 31. We talked about that this morning. The nasty things that we've done in our past or maybe doing now simply because and lost people are doing right now because the peace that they want so badly evades them. Look at John 16 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed the hour is coming. Yes, it's now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why is that? Because there's intimacy in that place of communion. There's fellowship in that place of communion. And it brings forth peace. It brings forth joy. It brings forth transcendent joy. And it is predicated upon the agape of God. Because it's intimacy with Him. There's hope too, and we're going to return back to that one, so we're going to leave that one alone for a minute. Hope. But here is the place nowadays where sometimes we can fall in the trap of desiring to hear what we want to hear instead of hearing what we need to hear. And this is it. I'm not going to be able to go very far with this this morning. For the believer in communion. You can expect in the place of communion to be anchored by, sustained by, and share the love of Christ. You can expect peace of God. You can expect unmitigated, untainted, untouchable hope. And you can walk in transcendent joy. But when you get to that place, here's what's guaranteed there. It's suffering. 
suffering is guaranteed there. It's not an option. It's not like, well, some Christians will experience it and some won't. I can build a biblical case, because that's the only case worth building this morning, that it is guaranteed. It is guaranteed there. In the place of courtyard, listen to me carefully, dear ones. We know this to be true, but let's highlight it this morning. In the place of the courtyard, that is where you experience the work of the cross for you. But in the place of communion, that and that place alone is where you experience the work of the cross in you. The work of the cross for us saves us. The work of the cross in us conforms us into the image of God's Son. Hallelujah. That's the part we don't want to hear. That's the part where we want to just let's contort things and switch things around and let's don't talk about that kind of stuff because that kind of spoils the party. You understand? I mean, let's don't do that. Let's don't go there. Let's don't do that. But it's guaranteed. It is guaranteed. And you know what? We need to be careful because everything in our flesh resists that. We resist that. We want no part of that. Little wonder the theological systems would be built on avoiding it because it prevents Christ's likeness. And it because it shuts down and hamstrings the testimony of God's people as God's Son has His way with them to fill up that which is lacking in His suffering. As what? To redeem people? No. To give testimony of having been redeemed. My suffering doesn't redeem anybody. Only the suffering of Christ does that. But my suffering has redemptive power because it points to the one that redeemed you and me. And so, hallelujah. So we're going to take an outline and we're not going to be able to finish it this morning. But we're going to outline this and I hope I, I hope every message I craft it this way or God does. We're going to look at revelation, we're going to look at illustration, and we're going to look at application. Every time you study the Bible, think about that. What does it reveal? How is it illustrated in the scriptures and how do we apply it? So revelation, illustration, application. Revelation, illustration, application. Revelation, illustration, application. And so now let's look at the revelation. And the title of the message this morning is Do Not Think It Strange. Do Not Think It Strange. And let's go to the first place that we go there for the revelation of this issue of suffering. And that is a place we've been before. But let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Can you do it with me? 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 16. Did you know God's a God of encouragement? Did you know that, Scott? Isn't He, though? He'll say encouraging things to you. And before He ever... And by the way, even though we're talking about suffering here, I don't know of a syllable in the Bible that's bad news for God's elect. I don't know of one. If you know of something in the Bible that's bad news for God's people, I appreciate you show it to me because I can't find it. It's just not there. It's nothing but good news coming from heaven. But it's honest news too, isn't it? And look at this, 1 Peter 12, and look how he starts it. Beloved. Y'all recognize that word? You recognize it? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased at the baptism. This is my beloved son, Peter. Hush and listen to him. Mount of Transfiguration. And now, because we're in Christ, he says the same thing about me and you. You're beloved. Oh, what a way to start the rest of it. Listen, you can receive it. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you 
Well, the same is true with our relationship with the Lord. Beloved, listen, listen, beloved. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. If that's not the playground for the devil, I don't know what is. When the suffering does come, he exploits that right there and says, what in the world is this? Is this the way God treats his people? You have a dysfunctional God. You're a dysfunctional family. You're a member of a dysfunctional religion. You've got a dysfunctional confession. What is wrong with you? And then you can turn on the television and people everywhere will talk you out of the suffering that God has ordained for his own. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as so some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory may be, may, is revealed, you may, your glory may be revealed with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It reminds me of when Jesus was baptized. The Bible says the Holy Spirit lit on him like a dove. There's an end, it, it, there's a grace. Donald Gray Barnhouse, I've got a commentary he did on Romans. It took him 12 years to teach it on the radio. They put it in a book form. It's four volumes. I understand about 10% of it. And what I don't understand, it sure does sound good. And almost every pastor has a commentary by Donald Gray Barhouse. It's the greatest commentary on Romans I believe I've ever read. And his wife died at an early age. And he had young children. And coming back from the funeral, he was trying to illustrate for them the death that they just experienced. Their hearts were broken. And they pulled up to an intersection. And they were sitting there at the intersection. He's before the Lord. Lord, show me something. Give me something. And an 18-wheeler passed by. Because they were stopped and they had the right of way. And the shadow of the truck went across their car. He said, little ones, let me ask you a question. Would you rather be hit by the truck or would you rather be hit by his shadow? Oh, his shadow, Daddy. Well, that's what your mother just experienced. She went through the shadow of death. And just as surely as that shadow didn't harm us sitting in that car, it didn't harm your mother either. Because she's cradled in the arms of Jesus. Amen to that. Amen. And said, listen, the suffering of this present age is not worthy to be compared to the glory that follows. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Patient endurance under trial fashions us into the image of God's Son and gives testimony to the credibility of our confession. It is his Son. Our faith was not forged in a palace our faith was born on Calvary's hill. Our prince went to the cross. Let's be careful about this. Let's be careful about this. It's not self-imposed suffering. This is not like we just go through the rest of our life looking for ways to make us suffer. It's not that at all. Or we get some grimaced face going, well, I'm suffering for the Lord. No, you're not. Courtyard people, listen to me now. Courtyard people go through suffering. Watch this. Watch this distinction before we go on. We've got to make it. Courtyard people go through suffering because of their disobedience. And he, Paul, Paul Peter draws a distinction there, doesn't he? Look at it. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, 
or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if any of you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Courtyard believers suffer not because of redemptive purposes. They suffer because they're being, uh, they're having to go through and reap what they've sown. And God is probably carrying them to the woodshed in discipline. Look at Second Peter, First Peter, sorry, First Peter chapter two, verse twenty. What credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you when you do good and suffer and take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So let's don't go there. I've heard people say who are going through suffering at difficult times because of their own sin and the consequences of their own sin. Oh, I'm just going through spiritual warfare right now. That's not spiritual warfare. Oh, it's just spiritual warfare. No, it's not. Quit doing that. Because all you're doing is putting off your healing. Because you're still blaming the devil for what came about as a result of your rebellion. Don't do that. Let's be honest. The Lord is good and near to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon Him. How? In truth. Let's don't play games with God. He doesn't play. He's not going to sit at the table. So the courtyard believer... May go through suffering, but it's suffering that comes as a result of just a simple process that Nancy went over yesterday. You reap what you sow. But suffering in the middle of God, now isn't that something? Here is the piano part, and we're not told this, and we're often led astray. Suffering on the part of a believer who is in communion. It's not an indication that they're outside of God's will. But it's the very testimony that they're in it. There is suffering that comes as a result of being in the center of God's will. There is, isn't there? Revelation. It is. Okay? It's, it's there, isn't it? Isn't it there? Isn't that just the Christian life? Look at Acts chapter 14, verse 21, 21 to 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and many, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We must, through many tribulations, Enter the kingdom of God. Let's be careful. Our tribulations do not purchase our spot in the kingdom. They're just evidence of the fact that we have one. It's Christ's sufferings that purchase that, not mine, not yours. Let's don't go there. But it's evidence of the fact that we have a spot there. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7. Think of the Apostle Paul. You do a careful reading about the Apostle Paul, not just what he wrote, as if you can separate it, but not just what he wrote, but, it, but what he went through and, and the things that we get inside in his personal journey. And you understand that the Apostle Paul had a hard life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our 
tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so you will be partakers of the consolation. What was it like? For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. The Apostle Paul despaired of living. Now, do you know of anybody who had a greater understanding other than Christ himself, of the Christian faith, it was given a greater revelation than the Apostle Paul. And yet this man who knew Christ intimately, intimately, and had an understanding that God graced him with despaired of living. If you despair of living this morning, I want you to know that you're in good company. Because that happens to the Christian. We are partakers of the suffering of Christ. But look at the grace. Yet we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivers us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we do trust that He will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through me. We need to be praying for one another. That's why the prayer requests come in and we encourage you. Put it there. If, you're, if you despair of living, I anonymously put a prayer request on, in this church a few years back that I was despaired of living and put un, anonymous on there. And I had people praying for me. I wanted you to pray for me. It's a rough time, a low ebb. I'm going to tell you that right now. There could be somebody here this morning that is just like that. You despair of living. I want you to know something. It is a myth. It is a lie. It is, it is, it is a pop psychology to say that God will not put on you more than you can bear. Oh, yes, He will. He certainly will. Look at what He just said. Look at, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us. We were burdened what? Beyond measure and above my strength to handle it, Christ said, Paul said. Does that line up with God will never let you put on anything more than you can bear? No. That would be great thinking if it weren't for the Bible. God makes it clear. That's the whole point. And by the way, can you bear anything? Really? I mean, really? To think whatever you think you can bear, you're fooled into thinking that. Me too. I've been there. I don't just like the despair of living as a Christian. But I know this. The communion that came out of that, I wouldn't take nothing for. There's a better way of saying that probably. I'm sorry. I wouldn't take anything for it. I know God better now as a result of that than I knew Him before. 
That's what I pray for you always. When you put down an unspoken request, one of the things I always pray, God, will you use this in so-and-so's life to take them to a place spiritually that they've never been before? And if that means the suffering needs to come on for a season, your grace will be sufficient. If that means the suffering needs to go on for a lifetime, your grace is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. If He cannot get me through these trials, I don't know what in the world we've got to trust in Him for eternity. That's a foolish thing. If we can't trust Him for a lifetime, why are we trusting Him for eternity? He loves you. And here's the piano part for me. Revelation. We're going to illustrate it next week. We're going to have to do it next week. And we're going to illustrate it with, of course, the, most great, the greatest illustration in the Bible. Jesus. Paul and Peter. Jesus. He's the biggie. And then we're going to see it illustrated in Paul. And we're going to see it illustrated in Peter. And then we're going to see the application. I wish we could get all three of us more. There's just no way. But could it be enough to know this morning that wherever you are, it's been said before, and it really is true, Eric. It really is true. You're either coming out of difficulty, you are in the middle of difficulty, or you're headed for it. And it's just not biblical. And it's not truthful to say otherwise. It's not like it's an up or down proposition or some. No. God puts you in the crosshairs. You that shoot everything. You put, you put the thing in there and you got this scope. And you know what? We're in the crosshairs. Let me tell you what the cross is. We're in the crosshairs and God has committed. Listen to me now. He has not only ordained the way to this, He's ordained the outcome. He has predestined you to be conformed into the image of His Son. You are in the crosshairs if you're one of His. And I want you to know that that package deal comes with suffering. But that suffering comes with an inwrought grace that only you and Jesus know about. And you can't really testify to others unless they experience it themselves. Don't get in their way of experiencing it. Don't ever pray that it will end for them until God says it ends. Be there. Encourage. Lift up. But let God do His work. Because He is preordained. He is predestined. Not just the way to Himself. He is predestined the outcome. I'm going to stand in front of Him one day. You are too. And I don't know what we will be like. But the Bible says I know that we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. And the person that gives me the most problems on the face of this earth will finally be dealt with. His name is Lindsey Keith Lewis. Hallelujah. Amen. But here's the grace. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to close with this. And we'll, do the, we'll prepare the Lord's Supper. Oh, man. Romans chapter 8. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, I know we're just jumping into Romans chapter 8 in the middle of what is arguably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. If you're led by the Spirit of God, you're the son of God or daughter. Where are you led to? Verse 36. 
of Romans chapter 8. As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long, and we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. You are led. Post the work of the cross for you. To walk in and experience the work of the cross in you. So the resurrected life of the Savior can have his way with you and me. But here's the piano part for me. This is it for me. <laughs> Who is it? This is Paul's emphasis here. Who is it that does the leading? That's the question. Who is it that leads you there? And the Holy Spirit from God himself gives us insight about that. That's the game changer. And in the middle of communion, it, it sustains us. Because we know, you know what, Lord? You're a sovereign over this. You are the orchestrator. You work all things according to the counsel of your will. You're in charge. You're still on your throne. If there's anything that's not sovereign, in God's sovereignty, then whatever that is, is sovereign. And so God uses and works all things to the counsel of His will. The Bible clearly teaches that. And look what it says. In the next verse, after 15. You did not receive, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I'm coming out of where I'm coming out of, and I'm in what I'm in, going to where I'm going because of my daddy. That's who's behind it. My dad. My dad. You think that my dad is going to lead me to a place I don't need to go? You think that my dad is going to lead me to a place that ultimately is not for my good and His glory. Do you think the Bible is lying when it says that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord and who are called according to His purpose? And that purpose is that whom He foreknew, that He predestined to be the conformed to the image of His Son, and whom He predestined, He called, and whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, He glorified, and therefore, if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. God is for us. We're no longer enemies anymore. We're not at odds with Him. Could it not be said that the worst thing that could ever be said about somebody is that God is your enemy? Is that not the worst thing that you could ever hear? God is your enemy. And guess what? When He offered His Son on the cross, at that moment, I was His enemy. I was without strength, ungodly, a sinner, and God's enemy. And then He says, if we were enemies, that through the cross we were reconciled to God, much more, now having been reconciled, we should be saved by His resurrected life. I have His life within me. The manual 
Emmanuel's blood flows through my brain, my veins. I have the mind of Christ in my brain. Hallelujah. And whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're in right now, we'll dip into the application to say this. Whatever you're in right now, if you're a child of God, you're led by the Spirit of God. And if you're led by the Spirit of God, you're led by not just a big, giant, unknowable, cosmic God out there, some force, but a personal, triune God that adopted you into His family. And now you have the right to call Him Daddy. That is who orchestrates this. I want you to know, dear one, whatever you're about to head into, whatever you're going through now, if you're coming out of something, until you go back in for your next turn around, ask the Holy Spirit to put people in front of you who need to hear and receive the comfort that you received while you were in the middle of your mess. Use it for God's glory. Give testimony. Because I want to tell you something right now. There's not an enemy marshaled against us that hasn't already been defeated. The world, the flesh, the devil, done. God is for us who could be against us. And there's nothing on earth, there's no principality, no power, no things past, no things present, no things to come. That is going to thwart God's purpose and conforming you into the image of His Son. Nothing. Thank you, Daddy. So that's why we take the Lord's Supper, isn't it? To, to, one of the reasons is to just relish, just swim, get lost, drown this morning in the grace of God. Let God dunk you into His grace and don't come up for air. Just suck it in, the grace of God this morning. Expressed by the Son of God on the cross of His Son and validated by His resurrection. We're going to celebrate that with the Lord's Supper. Brian's going to come, we're going to pray. Brian, will you come and lead us? Father, we thank you, Lord. It's been appointed to us to suffer. It's not something that you just spring on us, but you give us a heads up about it. And I pray that we'll keep our heads up. That's so important, isn't it? That we're led by the Spirit of God. And that same Spirit who leads us, moves us to call you, the same thing your son called you in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his great suffering that makes victory in ours possible. And that is Abba, Father. Oh God, bring that home into our spirit. Bring that home into our spiritual DNA in a practical way, in a fresh way this morning. And anchor us thereby. And please help us to enter into the place that you've already ordained for us in that place of communion. Intimacy with a great and yes, hallelujah through your son, knowable God. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and worship you. And thank you that we can sit at your table with a place card and a spot reserved for us from the foundation of the world. In your sweet name we pray.